Today's scripture reading is from 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. Please read with me the parts in bold. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jenny. Good morning. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the, the pastors here, along with Daniel at Grace Sacramento. We're glad that you can be with us. There's lots, uh, to, be, lots to be grateful for this morning, and uh, it's going to be good to celebrate. I, I was just I was saying to Ken, uh, who's uh, working sound in the back, but how many people in this room uh, remember worshiping in this room a couple of years ago with no air conditioning? Oh, I walked past one of the vents and felt cool air coming out this morning, and I thought, God is so good. <laughs> uh, we've grown in a, lot of wa- in a lot of ways, and that's one that I'm most thankful for. <laughs> uh, John, 1 John chapter 2, 15 to 17. I think, therefore, I am. It's a famous phrase coined by the French philosopher and mathematician René Descartes. And uh, it underlies a lot of the way that we operate. Uh, The belief that we're primarily thinking things, that we're primarily thinkers, um, that we are... What, what makes us human is that we're brain power and intellect being transported around in these meat suits that we call a body. And, uh, and that change primarily comes through knowledge that we can educate and learn ourselves and our species into a better future and ultimately save the world with intellect and information. The Bible you might be surprised to learn, does not agree. Uh, the scriptures are not in, anti-intellectual. Uh, we, we, in fact, are told that we need the knowledge of God, that God has given us information about himself and revealed himself to us in the scriptures. We know that it is the message of the gospel that we need to understand for salvation, that God revealed himself. He came in the person of his son uh, to live and die in our place. But it's not our minds that the Bible understands to be the center of what makes someone a human being. It's, biblically speaking, your heart. You're, in Greek, cardia, where we get the word for cardiology. It's the heart that the scriptures see as the defining factor of what makes us who we are. Our wants and our longings and our desires are the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behaviors flow, says James K.A. Smith, who you'll hear a lot from today. It agrees, he agrees with Proverbs chapter 4 that says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So rather than saying, 
I think, therefore I am, biblically speaking, you might say, you are what you love, or I am what I love. If we set our affections on things that are worthy and true and enduring, if we, if we love what we were created for and what we were created to love, then we'll become who God created us to be. And if we love things that contradict the way our hearts were designed or, if we, uh, or, or less than we were supposed to love, we'll do damage to ourselves and to others. Even when we set our ultimate love or we, make, uh, we set our ultimate affection on something that is good but wasn't meant to give us the meaning that we're looking for from it, uh, we'll fail to become who we were created to be. If we build our lives around lesser loves than we were created for. I think this has everything to do with uh, the Apostle John's instruction to us here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, because he says there, do not love the world or the things of the world. 1 John, as we've been going through it this summer, has had lots of references to love. We've been told that uh, we've been talking about the love of God. We, we've been talking about the, the love of neighbor, the love of brother. We'll hear from John that God is love. But this is the first time that we've heard this instruction. Do not love. In light of the premise then, you are what you love, let's ask three questions to the text. What not to love? And what does John mean by abide at the end of this, uh, these verses? Uh, so what not to love, how abiding works, but before we get to those things, we need to figure out what world John is talking about when he says, do not love the world. So first, what world? In verse 15, it says, do not love the world or the things of the world. What does John mean when he says that we're not supposed to love the world? Uh, what's wrong with the world? I'm pretty sure that the book of Genesis says that God created the world. And uh, if you read in the first chapters of Genesis, you'll read about his uh, loving creative force creating earth and sky and mountains and trees and animals and people. And at the end of each one of the episodes in Genesis 1 and 2, it says that he looked at what he had created and he said, it is good. So I, I'm not sure that we can read 1 John 2 where it says, do not love the world and come out uh, biblically saying we're not to love creation or take care of what God has made. In another place, possibly the most famous passage of Scripture in, in the world, John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In another place, this same John calls Jesus the Savior of the world. John chapter 4, verse 4. So it seems like you can't read our passage today where the apostle says, do not love the world, and come out saying that, there, that John is suggesting that there are certain people or people groups out there that were instructed, you know, the, the people out in the world that we're not to love. In fact, we're instructed to love your neighbor and, and love your enemy and pray for them. And so what is John talking about? 
when he says, do not love the world. The word that he uses there in Greek is cosmos or cosmos. And uh, it can mean a range of things. It can refer to the world that God created. It can refer to creation of the cosmos, which God said is good. It can also refer to the world as in the people that God created in his image and set on the earth to bear his image and subdue it and multiply, which the scripture says he loves. Uh, But in, in this case, it can also mean or refer to the realm or the system, the world order that at best does not recognize God's existence, or in many cases is intentionally built around values and objectives that stand in opposition to the message of Christ and the design of its creator. So John is talking about the system of the world, the, the order, the, the philosophy. Uh, the world that John refers to here. Uh, There is in the world that he refers to here, there is no suggestion that a Christian should hate or disregard a material world or other humans. We're not being told to avoid people or discard involvement in our communities or distrust science or resist medical treatment or refuse to believe in the law of gravity or pray for it all to burn. This is an exhortation from John not to love what the world loves because you are what you love. So what does that include? What not to love? Well, there's certainly many examples in our current culture, in the current culture wars, you might say, or in academia, and famous historic examples, yeah, examples from history like the Roman Empire or Stalin or Hitler, where we're talking about literal systems of governments and, uh, and civilizations that were and are overtly anti-Christ. And that's actually what the, what the rest, almost the, the whole rest of this chapter is about. If you read on in John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 2, the rest of it talks about the spirit of anti-Christ and, the, and those who are anti-Christ in verses 18 to 27. But what about the more subtle ways, the more personal ways that the world would capture our hearts and teach us to love. I think that's what this short passage that we're looking at this morning is actually talking about. In his book, I've already quoted him once this morning, uh, James K.A. Smith uh, wrote a book called You Are What You Love, and I would highly recommend it. It's uh, been influential uh, for our leaders here at the church as we think about uh, how we are formed after Christ. Uh, But in his book, K.A. Smith describes a shopping mall, and, he, and as he describes the shopping mall, all he uses is a religious description. He de- describes a, a shopping mall as a temple, and, a, and it's a temple that is full of religious activity designed to tell a certain story about what is worth loving and pursuing. He says, when you enter the mall, the architecture echoes back to medieval cathedrals with tall ceilings and light shining in from above. And for seekers and newcomers, there's a narthex where there's either a program or a map handed to them so that they can navigate all of the offerings within, guide them to all of the fulfilling opportunities that the cathedral 
is going to offer. As you walk through the cathedral, he says, there's a festive calendar, and it's variously decorated and draped in colors depending on what season and holiday is being celebrated. There's symbols and images of an unending litany of holidays and festivals with new ones added all the time because holidays translate into more pilgrims coming into the cathedral and entering the temple and joining the processions and engaging in the ceremonies and learning how to love this way and what's worth loving and building your life around. He says, like stained glass windows on the walls of a church, this cathedral, cathedral's walls are, are covered with icons and statues that are adorned in, the, in garb that inspires our desire to be imitators, each telling a story about what will give meaning and what you should set your affections on to be fulfilled. He says, the mall doesn't care what you think, but it's very interested in what you love. Then he goes on to say, Victoria's secret is that she's actually after your heart. Now, to be fair, let's not just pick on the shoppers in the room, right? If you read the rest of the chapter, Smith will quick, be quick to point out that you can look through that same lens at all manner of cultural gatherings. He says you can look at, the st at a stadium and find regular rituals in a temple to tribalism and nationalism and militarism. He says that you can look at universities and you'll find their cathedrals to the worship of self-achievement. He says that each of us can pull out a smartphone from our pocket and see that there are daily rituals that tether us to these devices and a not-so-subtle message that comes with these rituals that we can be the center of the universe, right? We're being taught. Uh, we're, these rituals are teaching us to set our affection on what we have immediate access to and immediate control of and who follows us and who rewards us and who likes us, who approves and affirms that we are worth following. These are the kind of loves that John is describing when he says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. The word that we translate from Greek here to desire is a Greek word, it, it, you can say it, epithumia. And it communicates the idea of a love or a desire that has become more than a love or a desire, it's become a master. An overmastering desire is an epithumia, a controlling affection in your life. It can be applied certainly to, you know, evil, licentious, immoral desires, and that's probably what we think, what our minds go to when we read a passage that says, the desires of the flesh, right? Sounds like the title of a trashy romance novel. Uh, and it can be applied to those desires, but the New Testament also uses that word, epithumia, to refer to appropriate affections that have taken inappropriate control of our hearts, when family has become our God, when technological advancement has become our hope, when recreation defines us, when the products we wear and drive and purchase are our only tether to our identity. John means to include every way in which our own self-interest becomes our first love when he writes, 
uh, the desires of our flesh. It's every way that we pursue our, pursue our own desires and our own self-sufficiency independence of the God who created us to love him. The desires of the eyes encompasses all the ways that we build our lives around what we see and what we want and what we uh, lead ourselves to believe that if we could just have it, uh, we'd have the fulfillment that we think it would give. He sums up this description with this phrase, the pride of life. The, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Pride. C.S. Lewis says that pride is actually the center of Christian ethics. That uh, we, we, many of the conversations are around greed or around sexual immorality or around anger. But he says that all of that moral conversation, all of our ethical conundrums flow out of our desire to be our own masters, to justify our existence without God. It's through pride, Lewis says, that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice, he says. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And John sums it up this way. He says, it's not from the Father, it's from the world. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God, C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. The reality is, many of us, I'll include myself certainly, uh, know the biblical answer to the question, right? The, the, uh, the question is made to Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself because you are what you love. And that would be my answer, right? I know the answer. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so I could give that information, and yet I live in a world full of temples and rituals and liturgies that are teaching my heart to, to love a different story, to, to believe that my self-interest is the way that I will find life. And the problem is that all of these stories, all of these other loves, whether they are obviously opposed to Christ or seemingly more benign, uh, good things that we just don't want to make ultimate things, all of these things are temporal. John says the world, these systems, these loves, these stories that we're being asked to believe, the world is passing away along with its desires. He says even these, even these good things were never designed to carry the kind of hope that can sustain your life the way you were designed to be sustained. They're temporal, and you were created for eternity. Verse 17, he says, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Abides, word I use many times a day in my regular conversations. Abides. What, what does, how does abiding work? It's the last question for the morning. Abiding is a reoccurring word in the New Testament. To abide 
Jesus himself said in John 15, 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. How does abiding work? Well, if I, if I was asked, you know, how do you abide in Christ? Maybe my first knee-jerk response would be to say something like, study the scriptures so that I can know the word of God, because you can't know the will of God unless you know the word of God, and that's not wrong. Uh, we need God to reveal himself through his word. Uh, but at the, if the core and only part of my answer in abiding is study and know more, then I'm betraying my commitment to my belief that I think, therefore I am. Jesus makes abiding sound far less like preparing your brain for an exam and far more like something that has to do with intentionally depending on Christ, looking to be sustained by Christ, allowing yourself to be formed and reformed after Christ. Jesus makes abiding sound like it's far more to do with where, where our heart's affections are and where uh, we set our heart's affections than about the amount of information that we have acquired. The affections of our hearts are more formed than they are learned. We have Jesus' teaching in the scripture. We also have story after story about his invitation not to have 12 people sit in a classroom and listen to him teach, but to have 12 people and then more and more after that join him and live with him and abide with him and be formed by the practice of imitating and following him. We're formed through imitation. You're, what you love begins by what you imitate. Think about it. The same way that you learn to love baseball by imitating your father or your mother and playing catch with them is the way that you learn to love Christ by imitating him. And the affections of our heart are formed through practice. We may say that Jesus is all we need. We, 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 we relay that information. Jesus is all I need. And then... I practice finding my affirmation by relentlessly checking my phone to see who likes and follows and comments. I'm saying one thing, but I'm forming my heart with a different set of practices and rituals about where I will get my affirmation and my love. Here's the truth. We will participate in rituals and liturgies and celebrations that are designed to form our hearts. If we are unintentional about which rituals and practices and liturgies we participate in, then we will only be formed by liturgies of shopping malls and stadiums and smartphones and, or some other something that was never intended to give our hearts what they need. St. Augustine says, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. So we can be unintentional and just find that we're falling into liturgies and rituals and being formed by whoever is paying to have our eyeballs on the screen. Or on the other hand, we can intentionally abide. We can build our 
weekly schedule around an intentional gathering on a Sabbath day. We can uh, join a Sabbath day gathering that's designed to tell a story about a God who not only created and loved the world, but he gave and sent his son to die and redeem that creation. We can explore daily routines that focus our affections on Christ in prayer. We can um, mark off time in a daily calendar uh, to spend time in God's word and in prayer as much for forming our life around the importance of that as it, as it is about what information we'll glean during that time. We can hang colors on our walls that are designed to remind us and tell us the story and advertise the story to our, heart, our hearts of Christ's advent and Christ's passion and Christ's resurrection. We can, we can intentionally put ourselves in, in places where the gospel is being advertised on the walls and not just places where Memorial Day super sales are being advertised. We can gather to practice and teach each other to worship confess our sins, and to pray corporately for a world and for the church. We are what we love. And our ultimate loves are formed and calibrated by what we practice. We, we each have a gap between what we confess and what we say we believe and the practices in our lives that are formed around making that the affection and ultimate love of our heart. If we do not intentionally choose to practice rituals and worship formed around the story of the gospel, we will fall into rituals and liturgies that teach our hearts to love lesser things, things that will pass away and leave us without the hope that we were designed for. I don't think it's any mistake, therefore, that God in his wisdom did not leave us just a book. We have a book with an incredible amount of revelation about who God is and what the gospel is. But Jesus also invited his followers into practice. And uh, we build our gathering around uh, the communicated word of the gospel and the practices that Jesus invited his followers to do. And so this morning, like each Sunday morning, I want to invite you uh, to, uh, to forming practices uh, we believe that the gospel calls people together. And so in a moment, we're going to call the group of people in this room to come together in the center aisle and come forward. We believe that uh, Christ died in our place and that he invited us to remember that and practice believing that regularly. And so we come to the table. We believe that uh, we are washed in the blood of Christ and made new that our sins are forgiven. And so we keep the baptismal water up front and invite you, even on a day like today when nobody's getting baptized, touch the water and be reminded of your own baptism. Touch the water and be reminded of forgiveness.